Hello and welcome to a new episode of the Football Podcast, where football meets politics. I'm one of your co-hosts, uh, Guy Burton, and this is my other co-host, Francesco Belcastro. Hello, Guy. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you as well. It's great to you know be starting the new year with... Well, do, actually, do you know what we're going to be talking about today? It's, it's a very festive topic. Tell me. Uh, well, it could be. I mean, there's going to probably be snow involved. Um, but yes, we're going to be talking about... Uh, sport and diplomacy and with a particular focus I think on the Cold War hence the uh, reference to snow and joining us uh, to talk about these things is uh, uh, Heather Dichter who is a uh, professor over at De Montfort University a specialist in sport history and she focuses on diplomacy in the 20th century in Europe so she studied history um, at a number of different universities an American transplant, so University of Michigan, University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, and then did her PhD at the University of Toronto. And uh, welcome to the show, Heather. Thank you very much. Well, you're welcome. And I, I so obviously you've worked on a number of different things over the last decade and a half. I mean, the, num- the books that you've produced uh, are quite, quite plentiful, uh, both uh, so- solo authored and edited. Uh, just to sort of give the listeners a bit of a flavor of what Uh, Heather's worked on. Uh, She's looked at sport and diplomacy with uh, an interest in the post-war occupation of Germany and during the Cold War. So I think we're going to be talking quite a bit about Germany. The books that she's published include Bidding for the 1968 Olympic Games, International Sports Cold War Battle with NATO, uh, Soccer Diplomacy, International Relations and Football since 1914, Diplomatic Games, Sports, Statecraft and International Relations since 1945, and finally Olympic Reform 10 years later. So I think we've got a fantastic person here to talk to us about sport and diplomacy. And Heather, you know, once again, thank you for coming on. Um, can I just start? Because one of the things that you write in your work is about this idea of a, quote, diplomatic turn in sport history. Um, I wonder if you could sort of explain what this means uh, and what it means in regard to football. So when we think about diplomatic history, it's really, you know, some of the oldest history and kind of the most traditional kind of history that we had, like that and military history in in, in some respects, Uh, you know, how states relate to each other, you know, this advent of of diplomacy after Congress of Vienna in 1815, so much of history in the last 200 years has been about diplomacy and, and around diplomacy and state relations with each other. Now, sport history is a much more recent field. Um, It's really about uh, 40 to 50 years old, um, particularly in a North American and um, British and a little bit of Western European context. Um, And and with that, a lot of sport history has been um, social history and and thinking about, you know, not just how these sports develop, but, you know, their importance in, in society and culture. Um, And then also in some ways, um, particularly in a North American context, where gender and race history, um, sport's been very important and kind of at the forefront of those areas. Um, And then diplomatic history really is kind of within sport almost been non-existent. Mm -hmm. You know, when we think about sport and politics, it's often very much in in a domestic context, um, regardless of what country it is. And, And in some ways, I think, you know, this idea of sport and diplomacy being separate is because for more than a century now, international sport leaders, particularly from the International Olympic Committee, but all of the international sport federations like FIFA, have always claimed sport and politics have been separate, when in fact they have never been mm-hmm. separate. But so kind of those claims about sport and politics not being, you know, related to each other, they're, they're completely separate fields, politicians should stay out of sports, sports is, you know, should stay away from politics. 
has kind of meant there hasn't been as much of that um, look at sport and diplomacy. And, and then I think also what has kind of slowed that work is that, you know, for scholars to go look in, in the archives, um, kind of foreign ministry files tend to be some of the more um, classified or later declassified files. Um, and so with modern sport being much more recent and thinking about sport and politics, particularly um, really coming to the fore during the Cold War, so after 1945, those materials have long been embargoed and still classified. So it's taken scholars longer to be able to get access to documents to then be able to write this history um, and these kind of histories. And so as we now are in the 21st century, we've really had the ability to start gaining access to materials to really show that relationship between sport and diplomacy so much more. And so I'm um, that's where I kind of talked about the diplomatic turn in sport history. Um, there's been so many kind of turns in all sorts mm -hmm. of history, you know, the cultural turn, the visual turn, all of those kind of things. And so in many ways, what is kind of not seen as a turn because it's kind of standard traditional history looking at diplomacy, it's kind of taken a while to get to that in sport history. And so I think we really are seeing a lot more people looking at this intersection of sport and diplomacy. Um, so that's why I called it the diplomatic turn in sport history. If I can ask, does that is is there a difference between just the broader sport history and football history? So yeah, does 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 this diplomatic turn uh, include all sports, including football, at the same time, or is there or does football come a little bit earlier or a bit later, or is there something distinctive about about the diplomatic turn when it comes to football history? I'd say in many ways, um, because of soccer's, and I'm going to call it mm -hmm. soccer because sure. I'm an American, um, soccer's uh, importance in so many countries, especially Europe, and so early on in the 20th century, um, it's actually some of the earliest kind of diplomacy you do see in sport um, with the uh, diplomats posted overseas to whichever you know capitals across Europe, writing back to their foreign ministry, be it in Paris, be it in London, um, talking about, you know, the national team was here or whatever club team was on a friendly tour here and 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 talking about that experience and the reception of that team and, and letting the foreign ministry know. Um, and so um, that's something in particular France was doing in the 1920s um, that the French diplomats overseas were writing back to the, the Cato Stay in Paris. And um, so that's that's why the, the edited book on soccer diplomacy starts in 1914, mm -hmm. say because of that, that chapter um, about France in, in that book. So in many ways, soccer is, is quite early, as are the Olympic Games, although the Olympic Games in its earliest formation were not the big mega event it is today, but absolutely soccer plays a, a huge role in that um, that role of, of diplomacy and sport. That's great. Uh, focusing perhaps a bit more on the last couple of decades, would you say there has been a change or, a, or an increase in the way that uh, soccer or football has been used as a tool of diplomacy? Uh, and would you say that there have been moments in which perhaps uh, this kind of alignment has been closer or more evident recently or, or, or be, uh, before that? I would say there's an increase after 1945. And in many ways, that um, not just simply um, governments thinking that soccer is more important, um, which they do, and really seeing it as um, as a valuable tool um, within their diplomatic arsenal, if you will. And but also it's because of the increase in independent states and states that are members mm -hmm. of FIFA, you know, and, and 
Um, that whole wave of decolonization, 50s, 60s, 70s, um, one of the first things countries did was join international federations, and FIFA was almost always one of the first ones, um, and a country needed to be a member of five international federations to be able to be recognized by the International Olympic Committee. Um, and it, it is that recognition, you know, and even and even more recently, you know, when South Sudan became independent in, I believe it's 2011, they marked their independence with a soccer game that day, you know, finding and making a national team and playing a, a club team from another country, you know, but that's still that importance of um, soccer to an, a country's identity in, in that moment of independence. And then having that ability to be visible on the international stage is, is what soccer allows them to do. And as the most popular sport, it just keeps um, being reaffirmed in, in that sense. And so I think having more countries, all playing. Mm -hmm. um, it's not that they weren't before, but they're now more countries recognized by FIFA and participating in these these tournaments to try to qualify for the World Cup and even, you know, regional continental tournaments. You have just more soccer being played and therefore it being used more often. And kind of as that also happened, more governments recognizing its importance and, and putting that support behind um, wanting either you know, the teams to play in certain places or hosting tournaments, um, all of those kind of aspects. You mentioned um, soccer's or football's popularity and, and that's undeniable. But is there something specific you'd say about the game itself that, that makes it a, a good tool for diplomacy? Is it only that it's the sort of most popular sport in the world or perhaps you know, compared to individual sports or to other kind of sports, there's something about the game itself that, that makes it a good diplomatic tool? I think it really is its popularity. Um, you know, it's it's ease of playing, um, you know, where so many other sports do require equipment, specialized fields. I mean, yes, you need goalposts, but, you know, people, kids playing wherever around the world, you know, mm -hmm. can make makeshift goals. Um, you know, and, and so I think, you know, its ability to be played anywhere and everywhere. Um, it, it's not weather specific, like the way other certain other sports are as well. Um, I mean, you might rather play it in certain weather than other weather, but it can still be played, uh, you know, but I, I think truly it's, it's global popularity, you know, as the world's most popular sport, um, along with it being a team sport, you know, it's, mm -hmm. it's not as easy to get behind your, you know, kind of have that, that broader sense of diplomacy with an individual athlete. Um, individual athletes are used in other ways within um by various foreign ministries within a context of sport diplomacy, but really that team sport, you know, getting the nation and everyone behind a national team. And you see that a lot more easily in a team sport and thus the world's most popular sport really allows it to be used so widely across the entire world. You know, and it's not just by the diplomatic and, and global, you know, powerhouses, um, the world leaders or global global elite states. Um, it's not just the soccer powerhouses either. You know, it's it's every single state in the world has probably in some way or other used soccer within some element of, of diplomacy. We just don't know about all of them yet. Mm -hmm. We haven't had scholars do all that research yet. Um, but absolutely, um, because of its popularity, it's allowed for so much of that sort of diplomacy. Well, if I can come in, because you one of the themes and sort of comment observations that I would make about what you've been talking about is obviously we're talking about states and, and state actors doing dip diplomatic relations. But of course, you know, what is the state? Often this is sort of tied to sort of an idea of national identity, right? So 
one of the things I'm curious about is, you know, to what extent these kind of national identities, you know, have either contributed or or underplayed or, you know, countered sort of rivalries between nations, um, you know, in, in ter- it, through the through the diplomatic pay, uh, archives and documents that you've looked at. I mean, are there sort of circumstances under which, you know, football has helped, you know, contribute to conflict or even kind of de-escalate conflict? I think there probably are um, a number in, in both cases um, contributing to or, or de-escalating. Um, and uh, it's, it's impossible to say all of them, you know, and I think there's actually so many we don't know yet. You know, so much of the research um, scholars have looked at has tended to be some of the, the bigger states um, from soccer side or from a um, kind of state power side of things, you know, to be North American, even though the U.S. isn't traditionally very good at men's soccer. Uh, or, you know, really looking at, at Europe in, in this case. But actually, I think there's so much to be found in, in kind of regional context, continental, um, or even not even the entire continent, but, you know, smaller regions within a continent. And, you know, obviously, there's what people kind of call the football war mm-hmm. um, between uh, Honduras and El Salvador mm-hmm. in 1969. Um, you know, and, and that wasn't a war started because of the soccer match. Um, obviously, there were massive tensions between the countries, and it did kind of escalate and coincide with um, their their qualifying matches for the 1970 World Cup. And um, so in that case, it probably, you know, those tensions in football didn't help what was happening uh, between the countries mm-hmm. and their own issues as, as uh, neighboring states. Um, you know, but then also soccer can be used as a way to um thinking about it as as friendly and a way to to overcome differences. Um, you know, and that's uh, something that I looked at in the occupation of Germany and when Germany was excluded from everything after 1945. Um, you know, it wasn't a state; there was no sovereignty. It was occupied by four different countries, the victors, um, from World War II, and it meant they were outside of all of the international federations as well. So if you're not recognized by FIFA, you can't play any FIFA member countries or any of the clubs mm-hmm. in that uh, country, really. And, and so um, the U.S. Uh, in its occupation zone in, in the south um, east of, of Germany arranged for some or helped coordinate with some um, friendly competitions with some Swiss clubs. Um, they kind of circumvented FIFA's regulations by not having it be clubs, but actually city teams. So they like combined um, like two city, two teams in Munich that you would normally never think would ever want to be together, uh, you know, playing against. Um, I think Munich played St. Gallen. So it was like two teams from St. Gallen combined their players. So they kind of got around it. FIFA ultimately did kind of sanction the Swiss, but not by much. Um, you know, and, and this was an idea to help. And resume friendly relations between Germany and Switzerland, help give, you know, the games, there were three sets of games, um, and they were all played in Germany at first. They're supposed to have return games in Switzerland that they couldn't have, but they were charitable fundraisers um, for, you know, youth and and a um, sport and recreation leadership school. Um, so that idea of using sport to overcome division. Um, obviously, the Swiss really liked this idea because they maybe got like 6,000 fans a game back then in the late 1940s. Mm-hmm. And the Germans, even in 1948, where they're still rationing, rubble, everything, were filling up the stadiums, 30, 40,000 fans. 
Yeah, I assume they just wanted to get away from and forget about, you know, the austerity, right? Absolutely. I mean, it was that, you know, no matter how difficult it was in Germany, that was something to to look forward to. I mean, in even in Berlin in, in late 1945, early 46, you know, they started have soccer matches against, you know, clubs all across the city. So it, it absolutely can help bridge some divisions as well. And so we don't, you know, I can't speak to all of them around the world, but soccer has absolutely been there with some inflamed tensions because of national rivalries as it is but it can also help work to overcome tension. So from from an historian point of view, is it surprising to you that playing football at international level has, has become such a mark of statehood? Is it, should we be surprised about this? Are there any historical precedents that, that can be comparable, you would say? I guess as a sport historian, I say no, because this is why sport is so important. You know, it is, um, you know, People young and old can participate in sport, you know, the level that they can participate in what sports they might be able to do, you know, is always different, but it's something that people enjoy watching, people enjoy playing, and, uh, you know, both men and women, boys and girls, um, enjoy sport. And and so it's, it's not surprising, you know, it's something during the occupation of Germany, when the Allies would, you know, look at kind of membership in clubs, you know, Music is limited to certain, you know, certain people or certain activities, you know, be it religious groups, there's divisions all around there. And that was one of the things the Allies found is that actually sport was both young and old boys and girls. It, it bridged so many divisions. And, and so in that respect, you know, we see that in kind of all countries across the world, mm -hmm. so many sports and, and soccer absolutely um, gives that, that too. While For a long time internationally it was only the men playing you know what we do see much more recently is that you know women playing internationally also attracts huge crowds and you know can absolutely be used for diplomatic purposes as well so perhaps we shouldn't be surprised if if wannabe states uh i've got sort of the, a national football team playing on the international arena such so high in, in their list of priorities it's something that kind of follows from the importance of the game you'd say Absolutely. Can, can, can I take it back to Germany? Because what one of the things that's striking is you're talking about in the American uh, zone of occupation and the Americans weren't, well, uh, you, we, we've discussed, we kind of <laughs> have to accept this, that the Americans were not big football slash soccer, you know, aficionados, particularly back in 1945, 46. So it's striking that the Americans go for football as the sort of the way to encourage this uh, in interaction you know, in their zone. But I wonder, was there, were there differences in the other zones in, in the, in the French, the British and the, and the Soviet zones when it came to, came to football? Sure. So I definitely can speak about what becomes West Germany a lot more than what becomes mm. East Germany um, when it comes to the occupation. And what I will say is the Americans did recognize that um, they should hire an English coach to come tour their zone Uh, and help teach the Germans new things about about soccer. They knew better than I think to try to hire somebody from the U.S. Um, to teach Germans about soccer. They brought other coaches for other sports over, um, but they definitely hired an English guy uh, for for the soccer side of things. And um, the British fairly early on were um, focused on um, exchanges and, and bringing some youth German youth teams to England um to kind of tour the country a bit gain that some experience interact and that that kind of person-to-person -person exchange um so absolutely the the english were seeing that the french were a bit slower in their zone um 
French were a bit more hesitant to kind of have the pre-war kind of sports structures return. Um, and so they didn't have as many or as kind of formal elements like the Americans and British did really focusing on, on soccer. I think the French tried to support a bit more of the individual sports and kind of bigger exchanges perhaps between um, some French and German youth with skiing. I figured they both had, you know, Alps and mountains and could do that <laughs> fairly easily. And um, so Whereas I can't speak as much to the Soviet zone because I, I didn't do research directly on, on their zone of, of occupation. Um, but what I do know from um, a, a forthcoming book, a chapter that uh, somebody has written in, in a forthcoming edited book on sport in Berlin is that very early um, soccer was happening all across Berlin, all four occupied zones. And that tournament, kind of a, a citywide championship was um, across all four zones. It was fairly early in the 40s, mm -hmm. um, in the occupation, mid 40s. Um, and so there was still that ability to cross between zones and, and the teams in the Soviet sector weren't so restricted. And 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 in terms of sort of the, the West Germany and East Germany teams, what what did you, what have you found in sort of the diplomatic archives relating to, I think there's only ever one meeting between the two, wasn't there? Well, obviously you have East and West Germany. They're two totally separate states. They're competing separately in some sports, mm -hmm. but not all. International federations took varying approaches as to whether or not they'd recognize East Germany. Some said yes right away, and then there were East and West German athletes um, competing at things. Some kind of said no or tried to delay things. And on top of all of this, the International Olympic Committee forced East and West Germany to have one Olympic team in the 50s and 60s. So that meant to qualify for the Olympics in soccer, they had to pick a team. They had to, and they had qualifications for all German Olympic teams. Um, for individual sports, great. Who are the you know two fastest four hundred meter runners? That's an easy one. When it came to team sports, it was never let's pick the best East and West German soccer players. It was the East German team played the West German team, and whoever won that head to head, that was the team that represented Germany. And um, so they did play each other, but not in that wow. sense of thinking about it from like in a UEFA or FIFA sanctioned tournament. And um, mm -hmm. so they, there was that, that sense of rivalry. But when it came to the World Cup and West Germany's success, particularly, you know, East Germans watched it on TV. You know, they, they, were, they were still Germans. And so, you know, they were going to cheer for them over some other country, um, especially as they're then, you know, one Olympic year, it might have been the West Germans competing as Germany at the Olympics, but then the next year it might have been the East Germans, but there was still Germany. So it's still that for them to cheer for. So um, whereas the East German government was not happy that everyone in their country was cheering for the West Germans in the World Cup, um, that was largely the case. It's an interesting approach because in other cases, uh, other countries have decided to go for what we pick the best players from from. Each it country. was the East German team or the West German team. Same thing with rowing. It was this eight <laughs> or that eight. It was never met. Do you happen to know whether this was something that was, you know, whether the, sort of the drive for that came from one side or the other? Because I would imagine that it probably from the East German side, they would not necessarily want their players fraternizing with the West Germans and learning too much about what was going on, you know, behind the wall. No, it was partly that. It was also an effort. Um, Whichever side had more athletes on the team, that was the side that got to nominate the chef to Mission. So mm. this is one element that fueled all of that East German state 
sponsored doping program, but also, you know, if you have all 15 players that are comprising the soccer team, that's 15 more athletes that the other side doesn't have. So um, mm. there, there was also a numbers side to it too. Mm. Um, okay. So yeah, it was, it was, com- it was complicated. <laughs> yeah. And if I can ask, because you also talked a little bit about how, you know, women's football is you know becoming more and more pertinent and important, but maybe in recent decades. But I wonder, you know, looking at the, the diplomatic record, you know, do we see, um, you know, sort of exchanges or sort of observations made about women's football, you know, prior to you know the last few decades? I really hope it's there in the archives. Unfortunately, you know, the last 30 years is, is all still classified in pretty much every single mm-hmm. country. Um, and so this is something that uh, I hope we will be able to get to see more and, and read more about. Um, I think there's elements of it, absolutely, with wanting to host the Women's World Cup and, you know, seeing which countries you know, fascinatingly, the early countries successful at the Women's World Cup and international soccer were almost always countries that did not have the strength in the men's team, uh, which is fascinating in and of itself. But, you know, Mm -hmm. in in the more recent years, the push to host mega events and really seeing that now with the Women's World Cup, Women's um, UEFA, Women's Euros, um, I I really hope it's there in in the archives and and for us to be able to talk about it. And I think there's elements of being able to see that um, in in media coverage and um, to be able to talk about it more recently. But in in that real sense of seeing, you know, how are the the foreign ministries and the diplomats really talking about it? It's still going to be a while till we can get those those documents because it is such a recent phenomenon at that international level and thinking about it as a, a mega event. Can, can can I just ask another nerdy question? Absolutely. So it's about it's about the archives. I'm getting a sense that a lot of the archives that you're talking about, that the classified ones, they're primarily the state ones. So the the foreign the foreign ministry ones. Um, but obviously we have the sporting associations themselves. And to what extent uh, do they are their archives open to historians like yourself? So I'm thinking particularly like FIFA or in the UK, F, the FA or you know the German Federal uh, Football Association. You know, to what extent are they open? I'd say some of them are becoming more open. Um, FIFA, you know, has seen itself as as a library and archive. Um, my challenge was seeing visiting them during my PhD was that they were just building a brand new headquarters and then having a World Cup. So I had to go back the next summer. Um, but they absolutely, you know, let me use their, their their materials and, and you know, got a lot of great stuff from there. And I think, you know, quite a few scholars have used FIFA's archives. And um, national governing bodies see themselves as a sport organization and they don't see themselves as um, having an archive. So it sometimes can be a bit more challenging gaining access to their material. And, um, you know, the, the DFB in, in Germany really doesn't want to let anyone see anything from before 1945 or for that period from mm. 33 to 45. Um, you know, we all know that sport, you know, if leaders wanted to maintain, you know, in their positions, they had to join the Nazi party, say certain things. We recognize that, but the DFB still doesn't really want people to see those things. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so it, it can be challenging gaining access. They don't necessarily maintain their materials in a way that is, um, as easily organized as, as going to visit um, an archive and especially a national archive. Um, the flip side challenge, and yes, you know, seeing foreign ministry documents, other government documents is great, 
but there's also that um, that aspect of people deciding what to keep and what not to keep. And at times there are people overseeing national archives who are like, or it's not important. We can throw out these documents, um, which, you know, is like a knife through my heart. Uh, but they sometimes they've been able to be saved and, and are there, which is always great to, to see. So it is it is a challenge. Um, and I think what's also really important is, is bringing both of those together. Because you can get one story from the government document. You'll get the completely mm. opposite story from the sport organization. Yeah. But it's bringing the two together. Like, and that was the thing with those German Swiss games in 1948. If I only looked at the American documents, up to, uh, they absolutely took credit for the Germans being great at soccer. Let's be honest. The Americans mm. did not actually <laughs> teach the Germans how to be good in soccer uh, in 1948. But then looking at the Swiss Soccer Federation's materials really got that other side and that other view and, and how involved um, German individuals were in helping arrange those games, as well as the Swiss sport leaders, too. So it's, it's really building that complete picture with both the, the sport people and the government people. No, the question so one thing i've i don't know i mean heather you as a historian i don't you've obviously been probably and based in the uk you've obviously been following i guess the the covid inquiry that's been taking place over the last few months in the uk and it's been striking last month seeing both the previous and the current prime ministers uh, talking about how they don't seem to have their whatsapp messages anymore and it seems that a lot of this kind of, i understand that the covid inquiry is focused on the here and now but you as a historian must be you know wondering how much this is relevant to you know your field uh, if if so much of work is or policy making decision making is made you know by these kind of more sort of ephem ephemeral uh, things like whatsapp um is that some something that you're thinking about in relation to sports history uh, as well i think it can be challenging for for all historians you know going forward i'm you know how much stuff is is even just set on the telephone that you you know, that you don't get from, you know, telegrams back and forth or long letters back and forth. Um, there is what's called a, um, a telcon or a memcon in, um, you know, government uh, records where it's like, there's a memorandum of this telephone conversation or here's a memorandum, you know, this person came, you know, the, the, the president of the FA came to speak with us here in the foreign office. Um, usually they all knew each other because they were all, you know, aristocrats anyways. Uh, and then they wrote a, you know, a, a small memorandum of, of what that conversation was like and, and what might happen from it. Um, and so, you know, as obviously telephone calls happen more frequently or, you know, Zoom, Teams, everything else, you know, I, I have no idea what historians of the future will do based on on uh, what may or may not exist as a as a result of these. But obviously that is something that archivists um are always trying to, you know, deal with and, um, you know, preserving electronic uh, materials in of various kinds, and um, so that hopefully uh, we will have these conversations and discussions as to um, elements about soccer and all sorts of other things in the future. Guy wants you to solve the problems of future historians. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I think you know, you know, I mean, how much of those discussions happen at, at FIFA meetings, at UEFA meetings, you know, that it used mm. to be, you know, the representative would come back from that meeting and like write a long letter to, um, you know, the representatives, the leadership in their national governing body, you know, how much of that doesn't happen anymore. 
some of my favorite materials because obviously you have official minutes, but those are very formal and, and brief and aren't mm-hmm. going to say anything. It, the personal letters about those meetings that you hear like the real truth about what happened and, you know, people's views and their opinions of other members. And those are always the really fun documents. I love those. Thank you very much. It's been a very interesting conversation. Uh, I was wondering whether I, would, I could ask you something more on the contemporary aspect. What would be, you'd say, the most interesting development at the moment in terms of the relations between um, diplomacy and politics? Listeners were interested in these. What should be their, their additional reading on? I think it's um, I think it's the use of, of women's soccer. I think that's mm-hmm. something I'm really excited to see and 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 concerns over who some sponsors might be or where some events might take place, um, particularly uh, with those countries' own um, records regarding gender. Um, and, and I also think it is the more regional relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And that's something I'm, I'm really looking forward to more scholars um, researching into. You know, it's, it's not just what happens with all the states in Europe, but you know, what's happening regionally in North Africa, in in West Africa, all soccer is, is those contexts and, and those state relations, because I think, you know, we need more scholarship on, on those areas in, in mm-hmm. general. Um, and, and I think soccer will tell us a lot about those relationships, too. Yeah, no, no, that's fascinating. It's sort of it's, it's kind of where international relations is going as well, I think, in terms of, you know, sort of politics is more becoming regionalized well that's been really helpful thank you so much heather for taking the time and 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 talking to us um you know francesco this let's let's just have have a quick preview to what what are we talking about next week so next week is going to be gary alsmith on the politics of football in uh, west africa because you know there's a big tournament coming up starting in a few days Mm -hmm. um you know what that tournament is guy yeah, the African Cup of Nations. Yeah, so we're going to have an episode dedicated to that with, with Gary L. Smith. And then what else? What else do we need to remind our listeners? Well, I guess I suppose we should just tell them to, you know, if they liked the episode, that they should like it, review it, share it, subscribe. And of course, if they didn't like it, they should get in contact with us and tell us what they'd rather we did. And, and they can do that on all the various social media platforms that we have, which are Facebook, Twitter slash X, uh, Blue Sky instagram other than that heather we have to say thank you so much for coming in and taking the time to speak to us we really appreciate it and and best of luck with 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 the work as you as you carry carry on doing it thank you very much and thank you for having me on this podcast all right thank you very much